Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fire in the Desert with myself, Johnny. And today we're looking at Tan Staffel. That is, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And we'll begin with a, a clip from um, Australian politicians back in 2019. Reforming the tax system so it is fair for everyone and funding a health system that is there for everyone. We believe that Australia does best when working class and middle class Australia gets a fair go, when the economy is managed in the interests of everyone, when the people who create our national wealth get their fair share of the national wealth and when everyone has an equal chance to fulfil their personal potential. This is why investing in the future always begins with education. And this is where the difference between Labor and the government could not be more stark. Nine out of ten new jobs created in the next four years will require either a university degree or a TAFE qualification. And only a Labor government will be prepared to properly fund both. We'll uncap university places, opening the doors of higher education to an additional 200,000 Australians. And And when it comes to vocational education, Labor is backing public TAFE all the way. Yeah. I've been fortunate to visit about 30 TAFEs around Australia since the last election. The teachers and students are inspirational. So tonight I'm pleased to announce that we're going to double the size of our rebuilding TAFE fund up to $200 million to renovate campuses in regional and outer suburban Australia. Yeah. This will mean new training facilities for training nurses in Caboolture and Devonport, new workshops in Midland and Bellevue to make sure the Metronet train carriages work goes to apprentices, and a new construction centres for tradies in Chadston and Frankston, and so much more. Labor will also pay the upfront fees for 100,000 TAFE places to get more Australians training in high-priority courses. And tonight, I am proud to announce that 20,000 of these places will be allocated to a new generation of aged care workers and paid carers for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So that was a clip from former opposition leader Bill Shorten in 2019, putting his idea of free university education for his election campaign. You know, giving free stuff is a very attractive feature during election campaigns to learn voters. It sounds like a very good deal. So you say, I'll give you my vote, which doesn't have any tangible cost to me. In exchange, you, as the future leader, will give me free education. Or what about free housing? Or free healthcare cover? Free childcare? We didn't hear it in a soundbite, but one of the promises from Shorten in 2019 was $4 billion in free childcare. So to quote him in the Tom McElroy's article in an Australian Financial Review called Labor Promises $4 billion for Free Childcare, most families earn up to $69,000 will get free childcare under a Labor government, saving up to $2,100 per child every year. Labor can pay for cheaper childcare for 
working families, because unlike Scott Morrison and the Liberals, we aren't giving bigger handouts to the top end of town, Mr Shorten says. The plan will benefit 887,000 families. So why are we doing this? Because the rich have taken something away from you. Notice that there's a slur against his political opponents, that they are painted as a party that only helps the rich. It sounds rather noble, like Robin Hood giving away money from the evil, greedy rich, who obviously made it at the top through exploitation of the poor, who have been cheated upon or oppressed. This good versus evil, black and white thinking is rather simplistic. They can be good wealthy people and bad poor people too. We haven't done a deep dive in this, but how do we know this free childcare plan is going to benefit those families? Does each family only get sponsored one child? What about families with more than one child? Are we sure that's cheaper overall for the families to have free childcare because this is sponsored by taxpayers' money? In the end, everyone's tax will go up. So if I'm going to have free childcare, but have to pay more on income tax because it needs to be raised to sponsor this program, now are we sure that we are better off in the long run? What about low-income families that don't want to have a family? Are they better off? We're often sold this electoral promise that they are investment for the future. Don't worry about the cost now. Just wait 10 years, follow my plan, and we'll all be wealthy. This creates a soft lock for them to remain in government to ensure these programs continue to run, but we aren't sure about their guarantees about the utopia in a decade. Often the promises cannot be held accountable to them in their sitting terms because the outcome comes way off in the future, past their term. So we can't just demand results or accountability because the fine print of the promise is that the results won't come to fruition until way off in the future. What better way than to ensure your electorate base is loyal to you for the next election because they are recipients of your program? Often this is calling the welfare trap where low-income earners vote for a certain party to guarantee the continued flow of government support the way these programs are written disincentivize people to ascend the economic ladder because once they reach a certain income threshold, they're classified as middle income and thus lose their payments. As you experience going through many election cycles, you notice this pattern. In fact, with the US election coming up, we hear the same rhetoric. Here's an example from Elizabeth Warren and then Bernie Sanders. Growing up, my dream was to be a public school teacher. But that meant college, and I got my chance at the University of Houston that cost $50 a semester. For a price that I could pay for on a part-time waitressing job, I got the chance to be a special needs teacher, to be a college professor, a United States Senator, and now a candidate for President of the United States. Today, it's virtually impossible for a young person to find a high-quality education at an affordable price. We're crushing an entire generation with student loan debt, and the consequences are everywhere. Young people can't buy homes. They can't start businesses. No country builds a future by crushing the dreams and hopes of its young people. That's why I'm calling for universal free college and the cancellation of student loan debt of up to $50,000 for 42 million Americans. My plan will wipe out student loan debt entirely for about 75% of those with debt. It will help close the racial wealth gap and it will provide an enormous economic boost to America's middle class. The cost of my universal college and debt cancellation plan can be covered entirely 
by my ultra millionaires wealth tax. That's a 2% tax on the richest 75,000 fortunes in this country, those with more than $50 million in assets. Just 2% and we can do this. This is the kind of big structural change that expands opportunity to everyone. So if you think college should be accessible to all, then join us. All right, so that was Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she used to be the running candidate in the Democratic race, but obviously she's dropped out now. So we'll look at one of the other persons, uh, Bernie Sanders, and here's his clip. Loudspeaker really works. Okay. Uh, thank you all very much for coming out today. Uh, I don't often use the phrase, uh, but today we are in fact offering a revolutionary proposal a proposal that will transform and improve our country in many, many ways. In a highly competitive global economy, when we need the best educated workforce in the world, this proposal will make it possible for every person in America to get all of the education they need, regardless of their financial status. This means not only a college education, but the right to enter a trade school, the right to learn how to become a carpenter or a plumber or a sheet metal worker and get one of the many important jobs that keep our society going. In other words, we will make a full and complete education a human right in America to which all of our people are entitled. This means making public colleges, universities, and HBCUs tuition-free and debt-free by tripling the work-study program, expanding Pell Grants, and other financial incentives. Today, we are entering a proposal which will allow every person in this country to get all of the education that they need to live out their dreams because they are Americans. Further, in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, it is simply not acceptable that our younger generation, through no fault of their own, will have a lower standard of living than their parents, more debt, lower wages, and less likelihood of owning their own homes. That is why this proposal completely eliminates student debt in this country and ends the absurdity of sentencing an entire generation, the millennial generation, to a lifetime of debt for the crime of doing the right thing, and that is going out and getting a higher education. Oh, that's uh, Bernie Sanders, now also dropped out from the Democratic campaign. You know, it sounds too good to be true. You're asking me to take a pencil, take your name, give you my vote, and you're going to give me something free in return. If there's any hint of skepticism within you, you want to ask, what's the catch? It sounds too good to be true, and it often is. Something precious and of value usually requires hard work to obtain it. So why should the words coming out from people giving out free promises be any different? And I also want to be fair and open, and say it's not just one side of politics offering free goods. The other side can often offer free goods as well. 
So if you go to mygc.com.au, compare to pair Labour and Liberals key election promises, we have in uh, we have for Labour in 2019 they promised 14 billion dollars to public school for 10 years, then Liberals offering 4.6 billion to independent and Catholic schools. For Labour to offer 10 billion dollars for funding clean energy finance corporations and 5 billion dollars to update transmission infrastructure and also unknown funding to turn 4,000 schools into virtual power plants for solar panels, while Liberals will fund $1.38 billion for equity investment in Snowy 2.0 that will turn the snowy mountains into hydroelectric dam. And sometimes the left, op- left side of politics do offer good ideas, such as in the first clip. If you do wish to listen to Bill Shorten, he proposes to bring back manufacturing jobs for renewables back in Australia, but he promises many other things. But what I want to really focus on is the trend that we often hear slogans such as free healthcare for all or education's universal right. This implies that someone ought to give you the healthcare or education because it is your entitlement, which are known as positive rights. Entitlements that are added to you as a human. Never mind that outside Australia, in the developing world, people are suffering and the right to have right to speak taken away, which are negative rights. Concepts like free speech are negative rights because you as a human being can have it taken or subtracted from you. Don't get me wrong, if there was some painless way to give everyone free education or free healthcare, I'll be totally on board with it. But the question we need to also ask is who pays for it? This is where we need to consider opportunity costs where we are going to fund one actual promise, but it's going to come at a cost of another. And if we're going to fund everything in the present, they will come at a cost of the future, that your children will lose out on the opportunities that you have because at some point we have to reduce spending. This is the idea of intergenerational theft under the Howard government and under the Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson and their so-called Razor Gang because it took a brutal approach to cut spending in order to bring the national debt from red to black. From 2004 to 2008, we had a national debt of averaging around $60 billion dollars. We don't often hear the good side of this, but perhaps in a global financial crisis in 2008, Australia did not feel the effects of a recession when the US and UK did, who were already in the red. However, given the current slowdown of the economy in 2020 with a national debt of $541.9 billion Australian dollars, Australia might not be so fortunate to come back from this economic downturn. Therefore, it's prudence and spending that allows us to react better to crisis when it really affects the country. So why can't we take another loan in the future? Well, for the government to do that, they raise money by issuing a bond that if investors can buy for the promise that they'll be paid back with interest on a certain amount of years. If the government is recklessly spending money and investors can see that there's no way the government is going to return that money with the promised interest, then no one's going to buy any of our bonds in the future. And we can't guarantee any more spending that we probably will need when we handle crisis. The other reason is how vulnerable we make our country towards investors from corporations like superannuation funds or foreign countries. So in a way, the government would have to hold a softer position against these organizations since they hold our debt. It affects the way that we put our economic or foreign policy. So you also need to be careful of your savings and retirement fund since they also would invest in government bonds in their portfolio. If the government can't pay the bond, your savings or retirement fund will be affected. Interestingly, the biggest foreign investor of Australian government bonds isn't China, it's Japan. From the Australian Office of Financial Management government's website, 
Japan has been the single largest investor in Australian fixed income by country, with a large pool of savings, including pension funds and life insurance assets. Persistent low yields in Japanese government bonds over a long period have led Japanese investors to seek higher returns and diversity outside of Japan, including Australia. Based on the data published by the Bank of Japan as of December 2018, total Japanese holdings in Australian fixed income was around $250 billion, representing approximately 7% of the overall fixed income allocation. And there's a chart that shows that the net flow into Australian government securities and semi-government bonds is around $58 billion since 2005. So it's good to know that foreign investors are confident in us. But then the more of our debt that they purchase, the more affects our foreign policy. So one touchy subject a while ago was Japanese whaling vessels entering Australian waters in the guise of scientific studies when in fact they're conducting whaling for food. So if people are so compassionate about it, that is whaling, and want to voice their opposition to animal cruelty, then they're sort of hushed up because some of our economy is financially dependent on Japan. Perhaps one of the more contemporary examples is how Western corporations are silencing their staff on a support for the Hong Kong protests in 2019. American corporations like Disney, Blizzard, and the NBA paid close attention to what was put out. So when some of the staff were putting out comments about Hong Kong protests and support, certain NBA players sought to cancel or silence them, and Blizzard banned players from commenting on the protests. So being financially prudent is for us. We can't go around spending more than we can afford, and we can protect our independence. So let's look at a budget of Australia for 2019 and 2020. That was delivered on the 2nd of April 2019 that Bill Shorten earlier on had commented on. So the total expected revenue for 2019-2020 is $513.8 billion, which probably is a little bit less now because of the bushfires and the economic closure from coronavirus. The total expected expenditure for 2019-2020 is $500.9 billion, but it's going to be increased a little bit too. But overall, there's a positive delta of $13.8 billion. Our top three revenue sources, from lowest to highest, are as follows. Sales tax, GST, $71.4 billion. Company and resource rent tax at $101.9 billion. Income tax revenue at $234.1 billion. So already you can see that the highest part is income tax, which plays a big part in funding government spending. If you have investments and savings, then they tr probably trickle into companies to raise capital. But they too also pay a tax to the government. Now let's look at our expenditure going from lowest to highest. So one, general public services at $23.6 billion. Two, defense at $32.2 billion. Education at $36.4 billion. Other functions at $48.5 billion health at $81.8 billion, other purposes $98.3 billion, and at the very top, social security and welfare at $180.1 billion. So that's incredible. So most of my friends don't actually believe that national defense and security, and they often throw slogans like, we need to make peace, or we don't need another submarine. So even if we do cut defense spending, we're not going to bring 
all these uh, funds back and fund our utopian social programs that we spew out. Because in the proportion, defense is at the very low. So I do think it's a bit naive that if we do believe that we're going to disarm ourselves, then our neighbors will put down the weapons. That destabilizing nations like Iran, China, and North Korea will dismantle their nuclear programs or stop conducting cyber attacks. It's an eye-opener, because we are the, one of the most wealthiest nations with the highest standard of living. But we spend a lot of it on social welfare programs. But that's a talk for another time. And let's, let's go back to education. So let's look at the budget paper for number one that breaks down the $36.4 billion that is spent in education. So, at higher education, that's universities at $9.8 billion. Vocation and other education at $1.6 billion. Public schools at $8.3 billion. Private schools at $12.5 billion. Specific funding at $742 million. Student assistance at $2.7 billion. And general administration at $420 million. So that's interesting, isn't it? Our universities, TAFEs, and schools receive $32.2 billion. Universities receive $9.8 billion out of that. And what's also interesting is that there's a student assistance program that costs $2.7 billion. And overall, the federal management program of education, that is the labor cost to administrate them, is $420 million. So can you imagine how many schools, school buildings, we can fund at $420 million? So even though we spend $36 billion, it's not 100% spent on improving schools. A bureaucrat is employed to manage it. On a side note, for Social Security, with a budget of $180.1 billion, can you guess how much is spent on managing it? It is almost $4 billion going to add general administration to manage such programs. Can you imagine that? You can scrap these programs and take that $4 billion of overhead and make 4,000 households into millionaires. So when someone's saying we need to fund education to help students, I don't think they understand how much is already put in. That is a, already a massive spending of $2.7 billion to help students. But there's also unanswered questions. That is, are we so sure that this expenditure is an investment in the future? Are all of the higher education spent on infrastructure? What faculties, disciplines, are we going to focus to give us a return in the future? Have we got the balance between universities and TAFE correct? Is university a primary means in higher education after year 12? Is university the right path for everyone's career? How do we recover our losses from university dropouts? How do we ensure the graduates provide the return on investment by remaining in country? How do we make sure that Australian students, not international students, are a prime beneficiary of such programs? So when someone throws a blanket promise of free education, we should be very sceptical since they might be addressing a problem that is already being dealt with. But by making it free and giving a blank check to our educational institutes and students, what sort of behaviour does this encourage? We know that if we are going to receive money that isn't rightfully earned, there's a tendency to squander it. And so I'm skeptical of the types of degrees that don't provide meaningful jobs, especially in the arts and the humanities. That is, with public spending on organizations, these organizations will become less efficient in their services because they can afford to do so. And I think it's proven that when we come under adversity, we try to make ourselves more efficient. One of the booming areas of education is 
online or open universities, where students can achieve their educational outcomes through distance learning and online, so we can cut out operating costs. This is slowly becoming reality today, where the coronavirus has forced universities to rely on online learning. Not that it's 100% a substitute, but it does prove a point that we can still be effective without spending massive amounts of money on facilities and programs. So Milton Freeman helped popularize the term TANSTAFL, that is the acronym for There Ain't No Such Thing As A Free Lunch. This was also used in Robert A. Heinlein's book called The Moon Is A Harsh Mistress, where people exploited on the moon for the resources and labor. The example comes from real life, where bars and saloons would advertise a free lunch to those who would buy a drink. So already it isn't quite free, and by eating salty foods, a person becomes more thirsty and thus buys more drinks at the pub. It underlines a hidden cost or hook line to the person who falls for the free lunch trap. So let's listen to a clip from Milton Friedman addressing his critics about his lecture costs. The context here is that he's touring around Iceland. Education there is highly subsidized, and professors and intellectuals are proud that their lectures are free. So Milton Friedman's case, his lectures had a ticketed price against it, which the Icelandic critics were grumbling about. The accusation against Friedman is that by making people pay for lectures, and by extension education, it reduces the freedom of education, not encourages it. These are free, open to everybody. Your lecture, unfortunately, is a big break with our tradition. It's the first time that the University of Iceland is a party to selling entrance at such a high price. It's higher even than if the Bolshevik ballet came to this country. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously you're valued very highly. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing I... is that we are not uh, familiar with the... And the uh, point, point my friend was making to Charles is does not increase freedom, academic or otherwise, it decreases it. Well, you see, first of all, I suspect that somebody was paying the expenses of those lectures. Who was paying the expenses of those free lectures? The people who didn't go to it. Now, I ask you the question. As I should make clear, I am not getting paid for that lecture. I'm not getting a fee well, then it. Then it would be very interesting to know who gets the 300,000 right. kronos. Whoever <laughs> may get it. But let me go back from my expenses. Some I think of my there will be a lot of cost involved with this. So there will be a lot of cost involved. Yeah. All right, all right. Let me, I okay. want to ask you a very Professor Friedman has a good time as, as yet, and I don't think this is a very productive discussion which we are conducting right at the moment. So if I can admonish you and, and, and ask you to, to, to give Professor Friedman the chance to, to sum up here uh, at the end. Well, I won't sum up. I'm going to answer just this one question because I think right. it is a very important one. I think that the word free is one of the most misused words. We speak of free education. Education isn't free, it costs money. You spoke of free lectures, but those lectures weren't free. The lectures halls had to be provided. The facilities had to be provided. I am sure you have paid fees to some of the speakers. What you mean to say is that the people who attended the lecture were subsidized by the people who did not attend the lecture. And I do not believe that that is in my concept of what a free society should be. So I think that the uh, uh, charging of fee for a lecture in order to limit the number to the size of the room, in order to make it available to those who value it most highly, is a perfectly appropriate application of the price system. And that is the point at which we conclude tonight, no doubt. So notice some of the ideas he's discussed. It's not free. There's a cost of facilities, buildings, electricity, and there's also a, f a speaking fee to the lecturers. 
it's subsidized to the attendee at the cost of those who haven't attended. Who should rightfully pay for the services they consume? The beneficiary or the public? In his proposition, it's more appropriate for the beneficiary and the consumer to pay for what they value and use. So how does it relate to us? Well, university fees are increasing because they account for the subsidy that students enjoy. So whilst the students receive the subsidy, the universities can hike up the fees in response. So for example, first home loans are often absorbed and increase the price of housing. In spite of the subsidy that the home owners get, the salesperson will try to leverage that against you during negotiations and say, well, let's get the price high because you're going to get subsidized by the government anyway. So the government programs that is originally intended to make the housing more affordable increases the cost of housing. So the good intentions actually make the situation worse. Next, non-university attendees are subsidizing the costs of university students. The money used for higher education can be spent elsewhere or reduce the income tax and bring the money back to the taxpayer. Or what about Elizabeth Warren's concept that we tax the top 2% of people in America, that is the super rich. Who is the rich? That we see the rich people who have gained the wealth as something wrong. We presume that they get it through unjust means. But we need to be wary of that perspective. Since in the first world countries, you're probably one of the richest nations around the world. Our poorest people will still be richer than some of the other people in the rest of the world. University graduates will tend to earn more once they graduate, so why not let them pay it back? And do you think that education is a right? Do we deserve it? The implication is that you need it to survive. But when you look at the people and how they live, they don't always need higher education to survive. It's a pathway to wealth, but not the only pathway. You know, Australia is the envy of the world. We export education as a service to countries around the world. International students come here, as well as the UK and USA, to improve their livelihood. International students come all around the world to Australia, UK and USA universities to improve their livelihood. So what's the takeaway message? We need to be wary of any promises of free goods, because nothing is ever free. And is there an actual crisis that Bernie Sanders said? Given the age of the media, things are often hyped up, and a solution can often be worse than a cure. In fact, sometimes there is a solution, but we just ignore it. Social welfare programs can be one of the biggest expenditures in Western government. Social programs can be expensive to run and employ many bureaucrats to oversee them. We need to be wary of free public money pushing the price up of goods and services. And you need to think about, is it right that the people who aren't beneficiary of a program subsidize those who will receive it well if you like this podcast share like and subscribe put a link on your social media every bit of support counts if you got any questions you can reach us through the fire in the desert at gmail.com or on twitter at fire in the desert music is outfoxing the fox by kevin mcleod at incontact.com and thank you for listening to the fire in the desert and we'll see you next time